Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, producer and host of The Stages podcast. Happy Mardi Gras. I trust you've been enjoying our very special mini-series of Drag-In Retrospective, replayed during the World Pride fortnight. To conclude this series, we feature the evolution of a movement, alongside the evolution of a play, Camp, by Elias Jamison Brown. It played the Seymour Centre from February 15th, concluding today, March 4th. The Stages podcast was given exclusive access to chronicle the development of the play from the first read to opening night. It's a fascinating journey, and this episode provides a unique insight for you, the listener. Stages podcast season six, here we go. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing, because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or an, a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just Beaming at I me. hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. The evolution and construction of any theatre work is eternally fascinating. Elements of collaboration, persistence, intellect, resilience, humour, patience and invention are required. The creative process is unleashed as players and creatives forge forward to arrive at an opening night, delivering a theatrical baby ready to be invested, received and judged by the anticipating audience. This journey is much heightened in the construction of a new play. Camp by Elias Jamison Brown, commissioned by Robin Kennedy and directed by Kate Gall, is a play with historical and political elements, chronicling the rise of a movement in Australia. The birth of the LGBTQI rights and the subsequent advocacy it ignited for further human rights at home and globally is a salient story demanding to be told to an audience ignorant of what has gone before but also to an audience who forged that movement and who hopefully will find further and deserved recognition in this theatrical treatment. The play is being served at World Pride, a gathering of the global tribe in Sydney. The reverberations of the movement's early days can now be rightly celebrated, but alongside a recognition of what is still left to be accomplished. How will the play be received? What does it take to build a production from the ground floor? And who are the players tasked with this responsibility? In this episode of the Stages podcast, we chart the development of the play camp, speaking with the creatives and artists involved, and examine that tumultuous time in history, not that far away, when the story of camp was born. Thank you so much to our hotel. Good afternoon. Is everybody happy? What a treat it is to be here on a Sunday afternoon, right? Yes, but I'm very excited to be here with you all this afternoon. We've got um, lots of exciting things happening for you. 
We've got some readings of the brand new plate can coming up for you. Got lots of raffles, an auction coming up. So the entertainment, as you know at Stonewall, never stops. But right now, my darlings, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Robin Kennedy, who is a 78er with a long... It's a sultry Sydney afternoon in January. The Stonewall Hotel on Oxford Street is playing host to a fundraiser for the independent production now in rehearsal. The new play salutes the contribution to the gay liberation movement of a group of lesbians and gay men who ignited action through their instigation of a political organisation. The Campaign Against Moral Persecution, CAMP. Also called CAMP and has been performed at the Seymour Centre during Sydney World Pride. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Robin Kennedy, who is the associate producer of the play. The afternoon is attended by Stonewall regulars, a rich tapestry from Oxford Street and surrounds. Many for whom the world portrayed in camp was a very real experience, having been there and lived it. My name is Robin Kennedy. Uh, I commissioned the play. I was lucky enough to receive some funding and I commissioned Elias Jamison Brown to write the play and I'm working very closely with him on the script and I'm also working as the associate producer. It would seem an opportune time to mount the production, only weeks away from the World Pride celebrations in the host city, Sydney, and a geographically resonant venue to conduct the fundraiser only metres from the site of the 1978 inaugural Mardi Gras and the horrors that followed the march. Yes, it's, it's sort of mixed emotion and memories. Um, like we, we actually had a morning march that day as well as the nighttime parade, which not everyone remembers. As I said, we were doing this commemoration and also there was some legislation, proposed legislation happening in the US called the Briggs Initiative, which was very draconian legislation that would have had a huge impact on our community there. So the demonstration was part of that. It was called Gay Solidarity, International Gay Solidarity. So we had this march in the morning and that, by our standards, was a fair size, probably about 500 people there. And it was the, the usual gobsmacked onlookers and the usual hassling by police, but nothing like we saw later that day. But we had this other idea also, that we would have a street party. Because not everybody was comfortable uh, going to demonstrations, because at that time, uh, you know, you could easily lose your job if you were outed. Uh, or be kicked out of home, uh, you know, there were quite severe consequences. So not everyone felt comfortable being in a public demonstration because that would have linked them immediately uh, to being gay. So we thought, OK, we'll have a street party, we'll have it at night, sort of incognito, under cover of darkness. And we told everyone to dress up. So, you know, makeup and wigs, and not like we have today with the spectacular costumes. It was more like Halloween outfits, yeah. like. So, quite a few people dressed up, 
and uh, we only had, we only had one truck, so it wasn't exactly like Mardi Gras of today. One truck that led the march, and there was a speaker on the back, and just played the same two songs over and over uh, as we went from Ox uh, from Taylor Square down Oxford Street. But the police were hassling us right from the beginning. I mean, we're trying to have a good time, and, and for, to an extent we did, it was fun, until um, you know, things got bad, uh, where the, you know, the police uh, attacked us in, in force. They had many, many police and many paddy wagons, uh, and it's, uh, it was a very, very violent attack. But I think the thing for me is that at that moment, so remembering the movement had been going for about eight years already, and we'd come up against a lot of obstacles. And I think because we had been actually having a good time, when the police attacked us so brutally, something snapped, something changed for everybody, and we just, pushed back and just said, no, no, this is not happening. And we had, uh, you know, violent confrontations. We dragged people back out of the hands of the police, dragged them out of the paddy wagons. And it has been described as a riot, and I think that is actually probably what it ended up being, because we refused to just stand there and be beaten up or thrown into the paddy wagon. We just said no. The first Mardi Gras in 1978 is but one event that followed the establishment of the camp organisation. The women and men who fought for recognition and decriminalisation of homosexuality are considered the pioneers of gay liberation in Australia. It wasn't until 1984 in New South Wales that homosexuality was decriminalised. In Tasmania, it was 1997. Before that time, the queer community could and would be vilified, ostracised and dismissed from employment for the simple act of the love that dare not speak its name. Uh, the play picks up many of the activities and events that took place during the 70s, which in hindsight are incredibly bold I guess we weren't thinking about the repercussions too much at the time, but if you look back and you think, my God, they did all of that at a time when homosexuality was still illegal and there was widespread discrimination, it was of course a very misogynistic society in the 70s. Uh, so it does allow younger members of the audience to really understand what happened and how we got from that point to now. The origins of this new play come from a book written by Robin Kennedy and Robin Playster, a seminal tome commemorating the achievements of the first gay and lesbian rights organisation. Robin Kennedy's foresight saw that the story of camp, with its inherent drama, challenges and triumphs might extend to a narrative worthy of a theatrical telling. Now Robin, many listeners are familiar with the word camp and in a queer context can relate to a flamboyance or a brand of humour, a sense of over the top. 
But your ownership of the word is something much different. Yes, it relates to the organisation. In shorthand, we called it CAMP. The initials stood for Campaign Against Moral Persecution. So this was a homosexual rights activist organisation that was founded in 1970 in Sydney and very quickly spread throughout Australia. So there were branches of CAMP in every capital city and in on most university campuses. So the term camp uh, has that double meaning, I suppose, that you know, being campy or camping it up, but at the same time for us it meant an organisation uh, that was at, in the forefront of uh, homosexual rights activism. Well, indeed, an organisation that initiated the Pride movement in Australia. Yes, I think that's fair to say, because there were a couple of little things previous to CAMP being founded, but CAMP was really the first main politically focused organisation. And we, it was CAMP really that had the first public demonstration in Australia. Uh, which had signage for gay rights and it was quite fun actually, the first demonstration. There were plenty of balloons and that sort of thing. Uh, hence again, the play on camp. Um, but yes, I think it is fair to say that camp founded the Pride movement in Australia. We wrote the book because we felt that there had been very little focus on the years preceding 1978. 1978, of course, being the first Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras in Sydney. But the Mardi Gras didn't happen from nothing. It didn't just appear. There were years and years of activism before that. And we felt that that really hadn't been covered well in anything that I'd read or was aware of. And the other issue for us uh, was the fact that any history that was available was written from a male perspective. Mm. And the experiences of women at that time in the 70s were very different to those of men. So we felt that it was very important to capture that story, those, those various stories. So the book itself is a mix of stories from female activists and male activists, and it's a trans activist as well. Um, and putting that book together, I felt that there was so much there, so much emotion uh, and drama, if you like, that I felt it could be even more than we could, we could make it a theatrical presentation. Commissioning a work of theatre is a generous gesture. It also requires tremendous belief, courage and passion. All traits one can easily recognise in Robin Kennedy. A woman of similar drive and vision is Kate Gall, Artistic Director of Siren Theatre Company and the Director-Producer of this production of CAMP.
Hello, I'm Kate Gall and I'm the director of CAMP. We have draft four, which is, I guess, the next, um, was the delivery date for this part of the script, which I guess is the one that we'll take into rehearsal. But having said that, rehearsals proper don't really start till January. So it does give us some time and we have a reading in the next 10 days to kind of look, to hear it with the voices. I mean, it's easy to read something and make some notes. So this is getting much closer to where the shape and the feel of the of the play, of the play script. And it's really come in leaps and bounds. I mean, Elias has done an amazing job to really hone some of the individual character storylines, uh, to integrate the past and the present together and make those things meaningful. But I think when you read a draft for the first time, and this is sort of my approach, is I read it with a with a very open mind and twice, the, the two times that I did read it when I received it, I was very moved by it. That's when you know you've got something really good. Whatever is working in the play is working and the rest is absolute fine tuning. So I'm very, very excited about the potential of this script now. Look, I've started casting because I, I wanted to wait until the fourth draft. The timeline for this project, as I think I might have said before, hasn't been particularly friendly because often you're you know, casting a play a year out from its rehearsal draft or a year into the future of its, its rehearsal draft. But this project's fast and furious, I guess. Essentially, we now have six women in the cast and one man. So that's been a real change from the previous draft. Looking right into the future, we'll actually lock the performance draft of this script on the 30th of January. Um, it's pretty important when you're doing a new play that you're able to let the cast know at what point will major changes stop happening. And look, I, I totally get it. Some plays you can keep playing around with things right up until opening night. And I guess there's always a chance that that will happen, but actors need to learn lines. They wanna know the order of the show and you need to give them that kind of place, that moratorium on script changes where they know they can just go, okay, this is it. But what happens between now and then can be very dynamic. The thing that I want to do with this play uh, in from, from early January is start to develop the language of the production, which is different from the written language of the play. The play is a series of scenes and it has a shape and it has quite a distinct arc over three sections. But for me, I have a very particular kind of production in mind. And it's going to take me some time with the actors to actually get them on their feet and think about how we move um, seamlessly from scene to scene uh, because it's quite episodic in its writing, although the relationships are continual. We jump in time quite a bit. Uh, we we're jumping from crisis to crisis. They're not necessarily interrelated like a narrative drama. So I want to create this very sort of physical ensemble feel for the production that has very minimal elements, but it will take a while for a group of seven people to get on the same page with that. My task when we start rehearsal is twofold. One, to support the writer, to create new dramatic material or hone the dramatic material, and we'll put time aside for that. And secondly, to get on the floor and play around. We are working with Emily Ayub from Clockfire Theatre, and she will be able to help us shape some of those transitions really elegantly and inventively. Um, hello, I'm Emily Ayub, and I am the movement director on camp. 
what jumped out at me from first reading the script and, and listening to um, some of the interviews and doing a lot of the reading and looking at the research, the photography, etc., was really this, um, this idea of activism. And so the movement language has really come about from taking the, that idea of activism and how that moves um, so using the photography of um, the protests, things like that, and looking at the imagery within those um, within those photographs, being inspired by that imagery, and then looking how looking at how that might be able to be transposed into the space. So Kate really wanted that language of activism to run, you know, throughout the entire production. Yeah, I used that world as a way of, I guess, attacking the physicality um, and the space. The language I'm talking about is specifically for when they come together as a chorus. For me, um, the actors are a chorus who are telling the story. They're the caretakers of this story. You know, they're not, you know, they're playing a role. Um, but they also come together as a chorus for different parts of the production to relay those um, images of protest and, um, you know, to you know to move us so um in order to be moved they need to move and it's finding that what that physical language as a chorus is so they're not necessarily always playing their own individual characters it's kind of you know that they might drop that for a moment to become part of the chorus the stillness that we've found in the chorus sections would be more to do with um, freezes as in um, you know like moments of suspension where I, I've sort of used the analogy of a photograph being taken and that moment being captured and I've used a kind of technique of suspension to try and um, get that across to the audience um, but stillness I mean I think the 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 play, and we'll find this out in the dress runs as well, but finding the rhythm of the play and, you know, those moments of stillness as opposed to the moments of, of a lot of um, chaotic movement or, you know, when, when they're in the camp office trying to make things happen and there's a lot going on as opposed to those more psychological moments where people are, um, you know, reflecting on their own... Um, what's going on for them internally as a character or, you know, re different relationships, etc. Those are sort of more moments of stillness, I'd say. But definitely in the, 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 the parts of the production that I've sort of been working on have been those moments of chorus and that's mainly, there's not a lot of stillness, I would say. You know, the chorus is a is a tool to um we, we've always used the chorus as a way to tell a story and so i think i've been inspired by that that this is a this is an ensemble of actors coming together to you know to relay and to and and to be the caretakers of a story the chorus really have the ability also to move an audience um and so yeah we've used that as a way of um trying to find the I guess the breadth of emotion that's sort of felt in a story like this, where there's so much at stake. 
well, I'm creating something out of nothing. <laughs> you know, like nothing exists. And on the 17th of February, 2023, camp, the play will exist. So that gap between the dream and the reality is really what I manage and marshal the forces towards. <laughs> it's a ridiculously difficult job. There's almost no job description for a producer, but there are many tasks that have to be performed. Um, it's like there's a secret coven of people that make these things happen. Uh, I, I just happen to really love it. And it's really helped fuel my passion for directing and the sorts of shows that I like to create as well. A playwright is enlisted too. And for this task, the gig went to Elias Jamison-Brown, a gifted and emerging playwright who recently enjoyed great success in the Sydney festival offering Green Park, presented by the Griffin Theatre Company. An engaging play performed outdoors and exploring the queer culture of hookups. Hello, I'm Elias Jamison-Brown and I'm the playwright of camp. You, you know, it's such a vulnerable process to have people looking into your work um, at a point in the writing um, process that you usually just would not be sharing it with the rest of the world. It's it's too fragile. Um, but we're moving so quickly with this project. It needs to be kind of, um, you know, it needs to be totally crystallised by late November um, at the latest so we can start building a production around it. I got an email from Kate Gall, the director, and she'd been liaising with uh, Robin Kennedy, who's obviously quite a well-known um, activist and a 78er and a uh, core member of the Campaign Against Moral Persecution. And they had been chatting about um, the stories from this period and how underrepresented they are, how the focus is always on 1978 the Mardi Gras, as though queers kind of came into existence at that point, or at least in a political sphere. And, and yeah, there's at least a decade of an untold story. So they were searching for a playwright. And I don't think I was the only one they were emailing, but I was probably the first one to email back and say, yeah, please give me the chance. It's very cool. You know, the opportunity to access those survivors from that period, I would definitely call them survivors and interview them. I had a, you know, a couple of years ago, I watched this amazing French film called La Belle Sasson, which is about two, it's a lesbian uh, love story set against the backdrop of the women's liberation movement. And it was so heartbreaking and poignant. And I would wake up often for nights after watching that film, thinking about their relationship. And then when uh, that Timothy Chalamet film came out, um, uh, Call Me By Your Name, and it was so commercially popular, it kind of made me angry. Yeah, female sexuality is often uh, invisible, historically invisible. And I think that's something that Robin really believed in. And although I'm obviously not a lesbian, I had access to a trove of lesbians from that period who were really passionate about telling their story. Um, and, you know, a love story is universal no matter who's at its core. So I think um, that that was my way in. 
Yeah, I was born in 1992, so a long time after that period. The millennial generation is so political. You know, every sphere of social media representation on stage, having dinner with your family is a political um, opportunity to, you know, fight for something. So we're similar in that regard, but people sounded so different and queer expression was just in its kind of early infancy in terms of uh, in a public sphere. So there was a very kind of uh, opportunity to engage as a queer person. You know, everyone was called a homosexual homosexual, um, and lesbian wasn't even really a term that was used that often. So that was tricky for me to get my head around. I interviewed a lot of people. I, I probably have done at least 10 three-hour-long interviews with individuals from that period, asking them pretty um, prying questions about what was happening behind closed doors in their relationships, you know, trying to get away from the footnote, the historical footnote that you find in an archive or something. Um, and the other thing I was doing a lot of was going through old camp publications because the campaign against moral persecution they would print this magazine you know they obviously didn't have the internet um and so they would send these magazines out in blank paper uh, packages uh, without a return address just a gpo address you know to protect um camp hq and so i'd go through those read a lot of articles and it really gives you a sense of activism in the moment, live of, as it's happening. And the other thing was archives, going through the Royal Commission into Human Relationships. There's transcripts at the library, so you can literally read, you know, word, almost word for word, what people were saying and how they chose to express themselves. Um, and you can read between the lines um, because they were you know, even as activists, they were so well-mannered. <laughs> um, they didn't swear like we do. <laughs> but you can you can read between the lines and, and feel that this is being spoken by someone who was forced to have ECT or narrowly escaped a lobotomy or had their child taken away from them. And you can imagine the depth of pain that is there. If it was a film or a TV show, you could afford to um, follow an individual from that period and represent them uh, as literally as possible. In a stage play, there's only really room for four to seven characters. Characters become hybrids. You know, I've got four core characters and they're a hybrid of multiple people I interviewed. So then it's the ethical question of, whose stories are you blending? Is it fair to give one person's struggle and kind of take it away from them and give it to another character who was maybe more prominent when it came to public speaking and policy reform? But, you know, it, it kind of reminds me, there was a photographer in like World War II. He got into trouble for um, editing uh, an image of planes flying over a battlefield. He edited the image so they were a lot closer together. Um, and he also manipulated the image so there was some action happening in, 
in the one photo as well, a bomb dropping or something. Um, and he argued that he was trying to get closer to the truth through the edit because obviously the picture can't look around and see the full periphery. So I think with the hybrid characters, they're heightened and they kind of contradict themselves and embrace more than one person's experience in their journey. But it's an attempt to give the greater peripheral view of what the community was going through. The thing that really is powerful for me to grapple with every single time I go into the archive or interview someone is how they had so much adversity and were looking at the first generation to ever come out publicly on television or in a newspaper and say, this is my name, this is what I look like, this is what my job is. And it's not that long ago in history and their life is defined by a series of obstacles, which is, it's just hard to imagine fighting an uphill battle and the amount of times that you would feel that you're starting to lose that battle. It made me think a lot about literature of that time written about queer people. And I mentioned this in the play, every kind of book that was written that had a uh, homosexual storyline did not end well. People committed suicide or they left their partner for someone of the opposite sex, suddenly kind of, you know, waking up to themselves, their latent heterosexuality. And that is all the legacy of the Hayes Code, which was implemented by motion picture companies at the time. They wanted to make sure that films were morally appropriate and uh, homosexuality was immoral. Therefore, you needed to make sure that it sent that message in all of the books and literature at the time. And so there's this interesting thing where uh, art is mirroring society, um, but society is also mirroring the literature in a big way. And you see in reality, a lot of suicides and um, a lot of people who just don't make it through that period. There's a real fear that I have of crowding the play with too much, uh, too much exposition. And, you know, the reality is the language around policy reform and the commission of the tribunal is fascinating to read about, but really difficult to dramatize. So I guess I was focusing on the, you know, the universal issues there's a love story that I'm trying to explore in this play and the characters are kind of the would-be relationship. They're ships passing in the night um, and they may make it into old age without ever realising the romantic relationship they could have had. I'm not sure whether that will stay in the play, but it's, some, it's something I'm fascinated in. That really tugs at the heartstring of any individual, no matter what their experiences are, because we've all felt... We've all, I'm sure, had experiences where we could have been with someone, but for some reason we weren't. And for these people, it's often because they were making so many sacrifices to be in the public arena. They couldn't really afford to have personal lives uh, or indulge in that. They had responsibilities that went beyond themselves and felt such obligation to that. And it's heroic um, actually 
The other thing I wanted to do was put in a present day storyline. So we remember that the activists from that period, so many of them are, you know, not only still alive, but still actively pursuing, you know, human rights issues. And they are just not, they're not taking a holiday at all because they, they were and always will be political animals. And seeing them in a contemporary present day setting from, you know, 2016 from the plebiscite all the way up until 2022, I think uh, is a doorway for us to understand um, just how relevant they are, just how fresh their history is. And then we go back into the 1970s and, you know, you can kind of see that we're, we're actually not tracing history back too far away. And we definitely wouldn't be having the protests that we have now if it weren't for the 1970s. Well, as I said, I was really worried about exposition. I was worried about the play perhaps being too conservative um, structurally. The reading was good. I was really nervous for all of those reasons, but the actors really embodied the political jargon that I felt might sound like exposition. They found the humour and, most importantly, the pulse. What is actually going on for my character right now? What am I actually saying? What is the subtext here? So in many ways, it made me feel a, a lot of relief. You know, I think the biggest takeaway is that I need to find a way of covering this history in 80 pages instead of 105. <laughs> that would be great. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022. Director Kate Gall assembles a team of actors to read a first draft of the play aloud. It's a formative day in the process, some of the first birthing pains for the text and a chance for the production team to hear the blueprint of the production that lies ahead. So your opinions and your feelings are really valid to, valued today. Hmm. Yeah. And it's also great, um, Elias, being an actor and a playwright, being able to hear it off the page is going to be very helpful. Um, he is working very quickly. But, you know, that's what we're doing. That's what we signed up for. Um, and uh, the Seymour Centre has very generously supported the evolution of this production as well. And it will form part of a program for World Pride at the Seymour Centre that will be, um, well, the three major works they have are this, uh, William Young's premiering a new work, which of course also looks back at a biographic history of the 70s. And I believe they have Dan Dore. I mean, that's the real artistic stuff. There's obviously cabaret, burlesque and all the other things that, that go in, in the party world. But, um, yeah, so it's a real privilege actually to be part of that. And for Tim to actually have taken the chance on an unwritten play. Present to witness this exciting first stage are commissioning producer Robin Kennedy, playwright Elias Jamison-Brown, composer Jess Dunn, Associate Director Hayden Tanazzi and yours truly. Excited to be granted access to this sacred space. Jessica, as I said, I'm really pleased Jessica's here. Jessica hopefully will work on the production. Um, and we have Morgan Moroni, who's our lighting and video designer, and Angelina Meany, who are not here. They're on working on projects today. Um, 
so that's why they're not here. I'm recording the reading for them. Um, Hayden will be my associate on the production, but he's also reading Rory's Ross. Well, Rory, our kid, has a cold. He didn't want to come in and splutter over everybody. I thought that was very nice of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Rory, um, I thought Hayden will have read the play. You at least know vaguely what it feels like. Give it a shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Rebecca is going to read The Younger Tracy. Um, Jane is going to read The Younger Chrissy. Valerie is reading The Older Joe and Agatha. Um, um, everyone's got multiple roles, but uh, but Joe is the main role. Um, Tim is reading um, The Older Chris and also Dr. Bailey and the major male characters in the 70s. Di is reading The Older Tracy and Ariadne is reading The Younger Joe. And then we've got assorted roles. Yeah. The actors present are all familiar with forensically analysing text, the written voice of character and the arc of narrative. Among them is Tim McGarry, a noted playwright and adapter of stories for the stage. McGarry enjoyed a huge success in 2021 with his stage adaptation of Trent Dalton's Boy Swallows Universe and later this year brings Colleen McCulloch's classic novel Tim to the stage. The table read is a very familiar experience for Tim McGarry as an actor and as a playwright. My name's Tim McGarry and I was at the first table read of camp. Tim, thank you for this uh, chat to contribute to the the, the, the podcast episode on the, the development of camp. Um, as a, an actor and, and a playwright, what do you see the, the purpose of reading a play text aloud for the very first time? That's a great question. I think that the very first read around the table of any new work is probably one of the most significant moments in in a writer's journey. It certainly is for me as a writer. And finally, you kind of get to hear the work kind of anew because you you live with it for so long, you live with those words, but you kind of start to lose perspective of it in the in the in the whole. So um so that first very that very first table read I find incredibly important. And because you know often dialogue on paper um reads okay. But when you hear it out loud with the actor, it just really gives you the ability to kind of reimagine those moments. Um, And you can start to tweak the words and the lines. And often actors will have suggestions um, because, A, it has to sound right out of an actor's mouth. And if it doesn't, clearly there is either something wrong with the line or there's something wrong with the intention. And, B, the words really just have to serve the character. And hopefully, if they serve the character, they're going to strengthen the overall objectives of the play and I guess the other advantage and not just for the playwright but also for the director is to hear if a scene is really sparking because you know every scene has to have that right amount of conflict to make it work and you want to know is it enough is it too much you know is 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 that narrative that all-important narrative being propelled forward and the other thing that happens certainly happens to me when I'm writing, I find there's lots of repetitions creep in because you're trying to follow a thread and often you don't need them. And um, and as the actors read it and you hear it out loud, you realise that you've, you've probably gone too far and some things just need to be cut. Or the other side of it, Peter, is that often you cut before that first read and you inevitably cut a little bit of exposition early and that exposition is also important for a latter part of the play. So actors will pick that up. I mean, it's just so easy to cut a line and not realise that it it is dependent, 
um, on a later part of the play, but often in those edits, they kind of get lost. So, um, so that first read's also important for the writer. The, and often directors um, won't cast that reading from actors who are necessarily right for the role, but what they will do is they will cast actors who are good on script, who are dramaturgically savvy and who can really help um, um, dissect a work in a way that, um, that is most advantageous for the, for the writer. It's funny, you know, when I read it, when I read a new play and when I'm the actor in the room, I often don't think too much about the audience. I actually very much focus on on the story and and as and as the actor in the read. And I tend to be, um, as you say, forensic playing forensic detective. And I look for clarity in the scenes. And I look for clarity in the role, and I, and I try and work out what the function of the of the particular character is at a particular time and if it's not clear well that's something that I think it's the actor's role to feed back to the writer. In um in the reading of Camp it was a little bit trickier because I played several roles so you so you're trying to juggle very much you know in a short period um following you know four or five characters um through lines through the entire play and and that can be come a little bit tricky when you're when you've only got a couple of hours on the script as a reader because inevitably you won't you won't have read it or there will be a new draft that you get on the day that hasn't been seen before so that can be a bit tricky but I think I, I don't really think too much about the audience in fact I don't think about them at all I think that talk afterwards is I always find it endlessly fascinating because as a, as a writer, what I tend to do as a writer, I, so I'll talk in two heads. What I tend to do as a writer is I often have a lot of questions that I ask the table at the end and really basic questions like, what do you think the play's about? What do you think the themes are? What do you think your character's there for? What, what, what do you think your character's function is there for? And if the actors can't clearly answer that or are a little, they, what happens in once you ask those questions, if there's confusion, it'll rise in that talk because someone will say, oh, I think he's about this. No, actually, isn't he about that? But but doesn't he say that? And if, and if there's confusion in that room, that's a real marker for me that I need to go back and revisit a particular um, character's kind of functional purpose. Um, from an actor, sitting sitting in, the, in a room after a read as the actor, I, I just find it endlessly fascinating because generally I miss things. I, you know, I feel a bit thick. Someone will say, oh, and then I go, oh, I miss that bit and I miss that and I miss that. Um, but I become more accustomed with what the play's about and everyone has a very, very clear and different opinion often. And it's a chance for me as the actor to provide feedback to a writer because they're, they're kind of craving that at that time. I always think that discussion is really what's going to propel you into the next draft. And often by the time you get to the table read, um, you're kind of exhausted with that first draft. You kind of don't know where to go, kind of. You can't see the wood from the trees. It's all too much. But that table read will make it very clear and then a discussion afterwards will make it even clearer. And I find, certainly as a writer, it energises me. And as an actor, if I really love the play, I just want to get up on stage and start doing it. And, you know, in that table read of Camp, the one thing I do remember very clearly was how open Elias was as a writer. He was just happy to 
soak up all the information that was being thrown at him so quickly. And I think that is um, that is a great trait of any writer to be able to accept that calmly and just take what you want and leave what you don't want. That's the trick. You only have a set amount of time in the theatre. In a, in a novel and in a book, you've got days and weeks to read it. But in a theatre piece, you've got generally two to three hours, generally. And you've got to, it's like a, it's like a steam train. Once you get on that railway train, you've got to keep it moving and keep it moving forward. And once you reach that, that denouement, once you reach that climax, the audience are looking at their watch, they're ready to go. And they're ready to walk the door, no matter whether it comes at the hour point or the three hour point. Once you get to that point, it's got to wind up. And um, so you've got to be very um, careful about what you choose and what you choose not to put in a story. The creative team listens intently to what the actors have to offer at the end of the read. It's an illuminating discussion. For like forensic detectives, the actors have been able to identify elements of the play that resonate and those that perhaps require clarification. Okay, well look, I think since I last spoke to you, we've assembled a really, really crack cast for this show. I mean, the experience in the room is incredible. Genevieve Moy, Annie Finstra, Sandy Eldridge, Jane Fegan, of course, and Adriano Cavalletta. Um, Tamara Nat and Lou McInnes join us as newcomers. Uh, but that is a wealth of experience in a cast of seven, so it's really exciting. It's Crackerjack. Yeah, it's Crackerjack, and yeah. it's supported by a really exciting creative team with Morgan, Jess, Emily and Angelina. So, I mean, I couldn't be happier, and we have a marvellous production manager and some really great support elsewhere. Um, this is a big team for an indie show. It takes many hands, doesn't it, yeah, to make uh, the, the theatre experience? Yeah, mm. it does. Um, what really drives me with a new play is to see if we can't get the best people in the room to really support you know, the journey of a play into existence. And, you know, what better way to do it when you've got the possibility of actually inviting senior artists into the room to help help do that. It's great. I'm Jane Fegan and I'm playing Chrissy. And Chrissy is at the forefront of the fight for uh, rights for the homosexual community and is one of the founders of CAMP with her friend Dave. So it must be nice working with an ensemble again and, uh, and being able to play with other actors. It's very fun, yes. I mean, it's a lovely challenge to do a one-person show, but it's, um, I mean, the joy is always in the collaboration A and then B, the playing on stage. You know, like, it, yeah, just so much of it comes from the ensemble. And this is a fantastic ensemble work in that everyone takes on different characters. So what I, Chrissy's my main character, but there's a couple of other little bits and pieces that I play as everyone does through the piece. The characters um, are, in a way, composites of all of those women's voices from, from the period. There must come a, a tremendous responsibility also to, to one of those voices as best you can with the solo voice that you have as the actor. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we're all very much aware of what all of the 
people who've come before us to bring society along in leaps and bounds, whatever that is, whatever battle, whatever kind of um, fundamental human rights they might be fighting for, or, or environmental rights for that matter. But And there is a great sense of that history and honouring that history. But I think then at a certain point also you once you've done res- you've done that research and you understand who those players are and and they're more than even the people that we're looking at who are who make up the conglomerates of each of these characters you know we know it's much broader than that but at a, at a certain point um, you do forget about all that and just sort of start concentrating I guess on the on the on the one uh, character that you are seeing through this piece Hi there, I'm, my name's Genevieve Moy. Um, I'm um, f- located in Adelaide and I've come to do this play for Kate Gore because I love working for her. And I'm playing um, a, a middle-aged lesbian called Agatha, who was very much part of the, the camp organisation. And I'm also playing the older Jo um, in the 2021-22. So two time zones the play takes place. Are you enjoying dipping back into the 70s? Um, <laughs> well, yes, but um, it's always um, very much about selection and choice and considering, and so you, you try and do the, the appropriate research and don't get too full in your head with, with references, but just try and find the essence, the truth of that time within that construct, you know, within that circumstance of being in a political organisation. Mm. Yeah. Do you enjoy the process of working on a new play? Uh, most definitely. Yeah. It's, it's very tricky because it's always a time thing. In Australia they never give you enough time to explore text, the physical text, the meta aspect, what's the interior and what's the framework, what's the form, what's the scaffolding and then to rehearse and put all those components together. That's not given enough time. What's your, your process as an actor to inform yourself about the world of the play that you're about to enter? Um, it's often to try and find um, the emotional through line, the arc, um, the kind of, what kind of, so I work inside and then I work outside at the same time. So I've got the younger Joe for the older Joe as a model and I've got an actual human person that I can use as, as a, a, a means to enter the, the space and creating that character. And that's always very interesting because the physical is always the most interesting for me, is how, how they manifest, how they move, how they deal with um, new information, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and then, of course, to try and find um, the nuance for that particular um, period of time because it's a period piece um, you have to be very mindful that you're not blurring the modern today kind of framework. Um, you're actually in the unknowing of that time about the politics, about the, the journey of what these people had to undertake. The playwright has developed characters for this storytelling, but they're all based on actual events and real people. Definitely. Um, so. Is there a sense of responsibility that you have to, to, to honour those voices? Most definitely. Yeah. And that's always in, on the, in the back of your mind when you're playing those characters. 
you're very cognizant of the fact that you have a responsibility to um, be very truthful. Um, and that's good because you need um, strictures, you need boundaries, and that's always really useful. It's very fun and it's been really um, exciting working through the script in that as well because um, and trying to pick up where those uh, where the language might not be serving that decade different from now you know and 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 really enjoying how language has changed in that 50 years as well which is really exciting because you really you do um, it does highlight for you all of those changes I'll, you know, along with the societal changes that have gone with that. But um, yeah, the, lang the language of the time is really fun. But yeah, it's, yeah, absolute, all that stuff. All and kind of remembering that other time. And, um, we've, you know, we've been looking at even, the, you know, commercials and things from that time. Because, yeah, absolutely, um, you realise that it, it's a, a very different place to be, gender, sexuality, everything, and 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 completely um, gross and 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 other in a really you know demonising sense. Which and it, I think it's quite wonderful that it's difficult for us to really imagine that now. Thank goodness, but it was yeah, you know that was it was perfectly okay that cops were bashing gay people because they weren't they were animals or I don't other know, other one. seen as other I like how wonderful that every generation doesn't have to always feel the same horror or whatever it is but, but yes I think it's really important because the Tides will turn, and that's the potential of that going backwards is always there. We've just been watching it. We're watching it now in the States, you know, hugely in terms of everyone's rights, but, you know, in particular with the overturning of um, Roe versus Wade and, and all of the um, abortion stuff. I mean, you, you can just see how we can very quickly go what I would call backwards, you know, in terms of a tolerant and sensible and open society and so uh, I think part of the play is about remaining vigilant and knowing that that whatever gains you've made through battles you've fought can be reversed or taken away or you know go in a different direction that isn't kind of where you thought you were going. Um, additionally, obviously, we have Robin Kennedy, who initiated the project um, as a historical source uh, and someone who can gauge the temperature of the work, its accuracies, and perhaps respond to some, I guess, more community sensitivities around the content. I don't think it's entirely landed just how important it's been having her in the room. It's an absolute gift and what a privilege to be working with a 78er and telling this really important story, um, particularly about the women. So we got through week one, which is um, always a fun time, the balance between working on the text with the writer and then trying to find the performance language of the play. And I think we had a, a very successful, a very tiring and exhausting, but inspiring week. I think at the end of week one, 
my experience has been, and it's been true for this project, that we always leave perhaps the knottier questions to percolate. And these might be questions about plot, character development, theme and dramatic conflict. By the end of week two, uh, we seem to have reached a bit of an impasse between what's happening in the rehearsal room and what's happening with the writer. Um, we would love to persuade the writer to take more suggestions from the floor. But of course, as you know, Peter, we must ultimately serve the play. Mm. So for week three, I've invited Elias back into the room to see if we can't shed further light on our differences of opinion, and we'll see what happens. You're programming yourself, aren't you? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Absolutely. You're programming your body, your mind, and you're also having to program your breath. And that's the most um, interesting aspect of the work, is to breathe with the other animals on stage, find a common link in that process of how you exist off the platform, and then you have to be right there as you, when you go on, you've got to be sharp, and it's got to be there, and that's the quest. Further drafts of the script are to be done and the production can finally commence its assembly. Casting, design, composition, staging and exploration lies ahead. Much takes place in the background, behind the scenes, as the director sets forth with an assembled company of actors to breathe stage life into the play text. Hi, my name is Adriano Capaletta and I play Dave in camp and Dave is one of the founding members of camp um, and is representative of the gay male um, uh, you know, cohort of, of camp and setting up the birth of the gay rights movement in Sydney and Australia. Yes, when I first read the script I thought I saw that some of the events that they have um, recreated, I, I thought, oh, okay, so it's based on Lex Watson, you know, who started, who was in camp and started lots of other movements. And then there was another bit that they recreated and I said, oh, this is Dennis Altman now. And, you know, these are all people who are my heroes, you know, and so it, I did feel the weight of responsibility <laughs> and um, feeling like, how am I going to represent these incredibly intelligent men who were brave and courageous and, you know, did things that were so unbelievable, really, and um, and put themselves out there, you know, the first people to be on TV and talk about these issues. Um, so, yeah, I do feel the weight of it all, but I think at the same time, I feel like I have to just make it mine as well because they are just composite characters of them. And, and then there's also, you know, Elias has written given him a different personality that you know Lex or, or Dennis had as well so it's kind of like oh how do I marry all of that um, and you know because there's lots of other gay males that worked within that organization who weren't as politically active but were involved in it in some way um, whether it be you know counseling people or whether it be you know just being at the protest so I'm working on that now trying to work out oh how can I make a sort of tapestry or a patchwork of, of all of these characters and of course there's many shades of masculinity from the, the very flamboyant and, mm. and camp, if you like, to very sort of, I hate the term, but straight acting. Um, how, what are your choices and how have you decided to construct Dave? That's such a minefield, isn't it? I was actually, <laughs> I was actually talking, I was actually reading something about a, a review that, you know, someone reviewed someone 
uh, who was playing a gay character and they said, oh, they use all these um, lisping and mincing sort of things and it was a stereotype. And then I thought, oh, uh, because there's some gags in there and in order to sort of, you know, deliver them, you sort of deliver them in an arch way, maybe to get a, a gag, a, a laugh. And then I was thinking, oh no, I have to pull it back. I have to be straighter. And, and, and it's like the shame and that you go through just mm. as a gay man, yep. you know, going, oh, do I have to, I have to police myself and censor myself all the time. And I'm going through that, through the character, you know, through, through how am I going to put this character together? And finally, I just sort of said, you know, I just need to be me. Like I, I am a gay man who is politically active, who does care about all these issues. I'm just going to bring some, something special of myself and not really care if I come across as camp or if I come across as too straight acting. I'm just going to try and bring something special of myself because I am part of that lineage, you know, and I've just got to trust that that'll come through. Hello. My name is Tamara Nat, and I am playing Joe in this production of Camp by Elias Jamison Brown, directed by the wonderful Kate Gall. Um, Joe is the character that we follow in the play. Her journey is kind of the narrative arc, um, and she goes from not having anything to do with camp and politics in general to being almost at the very forefront of the group, making the invisible visible, and the voices particularly against that is something that I've found really interesting. The other side of it, being queer myself, I can kind I can kind of understand how it feels to be in the skin of protest and and in the skin of resistance. But to know what was actually uh, what they were actually going up against and the faces of that, like Neville Rand and, and the Australian political forces, that's something I found very confronting and very interesting in the way that it still exists in our politicians today. There must be a sense of responsibility you place on yourself to get it right. Particularly when one of them is sitting in the room with you most of the time and, and Robin is wonderful and she's such a powerhouse and there is a pressure there and it's all, there's also a freedom, particularly from Robin herself, for us to bring our own voices to their stories and to have that. The, the two time zones is also the way that the actors are meeting the real people and their stories and... Um, that's why it's wonderful to have some queer representation in the cast itself. Um, so yeah, there certainly is um, the need to pay homage to those people and who they really were and also bring what the issues of today are to the piece. The actors have now been working on the play for a fortnight, finding personal resonances, informing their character's narrative, collaborating as an on-stage community to replicate the historical community and the community that will assemble to see their work. What she's actually saying is, you people are lost, but she's not going to... It can be quite done in a gentle yeah, yeah, yeah. way. Like I don't think it's as low as... If, I think we're trying to make it an evil ending. Uh, and I think actually... I think, Tracy, I actually think Chrissy is more involved. Yeah, I mean, Chrissy's definitely trying to go... Yeah. I'm putting it no, down, she's but she's not one of us. What she, you're still saying, even if you do it with a smile and a joke, she's yeah. still saying she's not one of us, Joe. And you, time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, she looks like someone who wants to go and live in the Blue Mountains, and we ain't doing that. Tracy's cute. And then you can both look at her. Hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of wonderful, because she's so like, 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 like,
So let's finish the scene so we can see the triangle. And when you both look at her, you make the triangle. And we don't know, the audience don't know what she's going to bring to this, this relationship. We don't know what's going to happen. That's fine, that's what it's designed. The actors are used to working on new plays. They approach the task with contagious enthusiasm and determined investigation. One can't help but be in awe of the passion, commitment and resilience of actors, artists who eternally seek an authenticity in their work and who put themselves nightly in front of an audience. Relatively sure of the two-hour track ahead of them, but apprehensive about how the performance may be played out surfing a wave of audience engagement and reaction, alongside their own on-stage journey. Hi, I'm Annie Finstra. I play Chrissy, uh, the older version in the play. Um, and Chrissy is a founding member of CAMP and uh, part of the uh, political activism uh, that plays the central theme within the play itself. You know, creating a new work uh, is always difficult because there are so many different uh, ways of, of working with several different people in the room. And new work is, you know, of course, always difficult because you're trying to create a piece of writing that will be probably stand the test of time within the Australian canon of literature, but also um, give these incredible actors something really um, substantial and layered to play with and to be able to characterise and and, um, and bring to life, not just from a character point of view, but from a story point of view. But of course, not having the writer in the room all the time it means that the brain's trust gets to work and then presents the new ideas and the new structure of the piece to the writer. So it's a time-consuming process and it's, and, it, and it's quite intellectually challenging. But having said that, this is also an incredibly physical piece and so in order to create the transitions in terms of the setting, the actors themselves are creating those transitions in, with, um, with choreography and props to create the world of the play. Hello, Sandy Eldridge and I play Tracy and also a number of uh, other characters in the ensemble of Camp. It, it's interesting, I think, because um, my predominant um, adaptation experience has been working collaboratively with two other people. So I think that's possibly the best thing that I can bring is that uh, of um, I'm, I'm quite good at when people say, no, I don't like that idea, that doesn't work, I'll go, okay, fine, and move on. I'm pretty robust, which is great. But also, if there is an idea that I, uh, that I really like, or there's something that, with the, the writing that I really want to push for, I'll, I'll, I'll push and push and push and push and push. Um, because I'm used to working with two other people going, no, 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 and I go, oh, yeah. Well, because collaboration can be a challenging process, yeah, but absolutely. also it's, it's essential for the successful construction of, of a piece of theatre too. Yes, very much so. That's where it's all about collaboration, isn't it? Even at the end, it's about collaboration between the audience and the, 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 the show and the actors with the story, so, yeah. Do you find it um, 
a challenge or exhausting or is it exhilarating? Oh, it's been been all three. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> a very it's a mix of emotions. It's a mix isn't of it? emotions. It's been great. Um, the first week um, of rehearsal predominantly was looking at the movement, uh, the language of movement um, in the telling of the story. Um, how Kate wants to work with that, and and that that was fantastic. But um, you know, I haven't been on stage for a good six months, and and had certain ailments and things and, and so it was it was a big challenge I would go home every night and sleep soundly um, and this week we've been focusing on um, on the text and uh, and also uh, beginning to 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 dig down into the scenes which is, has been so exhilarating to be up on the floor doing that So it's been absolutely terrific to, to dig down into news footage and into um, research into um, you know different YouTube channels that I've gone down I've gone down many rabbit holes late at night um, and how people presented themselves and the news. I mean, it's been fascinating looking at um, Vox Pox. Fox Pops, is yep. that right? With um, on the street, yeah, on the street in in the seventies, and how people weren't used to being on camera. It never occurred to them, and they don't have that veneer that we have. Um, and how they spoke. And how they spoke. Yeah. And that that Australian accent that's really right through that nasal, right, right yeah. up there, yeah. and and <clears throat> the sort of shyness that comes in. It, it's The rehearsal room is a laboratory of discovery, a place where creatives unite to find solutions, express frustration, experiment with choices, laugh a lot and build something special. I watch the actors play with abundant joy as they are tasked with learning or relearning dances from the period. Along with the fun, the actors also accept with great responsibility the charge of honouring these stories and the real-life men and women whose characters they will eventually inhabit. Does that sort of sit with you? Yeah. Because the sound of it, the purpose of the recordings is to give us a historical time and place. Yeah. The Vietnam War, in my mind, is quite strong now, but for the first-time audience, we're just going to need to beat that drum a little bit harder. Um, and I think this is the scene that does it. It has a couple of cracks at various things. 
So the reporting about uh, the world at war is obviously super important. People who are more politically engaged in this period will know that the 70s on the cusp of major change, not only because of um, our involvement in the war, but other things, but they revolved around this. Um, so yeah, it's an edit, but I, I mean, and Elias has obviously done his own edit here. Mm. If there's an, something that you feel that needs to be included, I'm pretty sure that's just a discussion with him. Because yeah, I've never made any bones that that wouldn't be a voiceover. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of, we go from the scene in Chelmsford, the end of the Chelmsford scene, into the public bar, and the sound world will take us there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because sometimes, you know, you never want to cut lines in front of actors because most of the, often actors don't want their lines to be cut. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, is that an easy process when, when you do have to cut? Actually, with these actors, it's been fine because, as you said, a lot of them are writers. Mm. So their interest really is in um, the journey that we're going to take the entire audience on but also because there's like so many different characters in the show and they're jumping through many characters I don't think they're as deeply attached it's not like when you're doing a production of Shakespeare and someone's playing Juliet yeah. and you're going through like slicing all her lines to try and get it down to 60 minutes or something um, a lot less ego attached to it so that's good one thing that I'm definitely aware of is that our attention span has like totally shifted in the last couple of years and so you really can't have the play go beyond 60 to 90 minutes unless it's like a festival work and people are prepared to sit there for a long time unless the duration is kind of part of the experience and in um, this production of camp it's not so yeah you're trying to serve the broader story in the shortest amount of time and it's hard from a story telling point of view because most of us are brought up really glorifying those kinds of works where you get to sit in the universe and indulge in it for a long time and there's more to great dramaturgy than just being succinct but then yeah you do have to remember that um it is verging on selfish to ask the audience to give too much of their time uh, particularly when it's like sydney world pride and there's a lot of other shows to see so it's it's tricky to cut down from like 110 pages to 68 pages I think we're at at the moment. I think I had way too many characters in the first version of the play. What I was trying to do was like accommodate for the wealth of different experiences and you want to be careful not to unfairly load one character with too much tragedy, for instance. So it's like, you know, trying to share the load, um, but also really impress upon the audience how many individuals made up a movement like this. Yeah. But in the end, in the you know interest of clarity and focus, you have to just cut. So I probably cut four characters that were extraneous to the storyline. And then with the characters that I had, I, I guess I was able to pack them with more intrigue, more layers. This play has such an emphasis on the lesbian experience, which has been neglected for so long. Um, 
So I don't know if everyone will be on board with that because, you know, there's only one male cast member in the show. But I think it's in fairness. Yeah. 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 And CAMP, the organisation, was populated by many lesbians. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing. In film and theatre and novels, the male homosexual experience is almost always the more commercially successful story. I don't know why. Um, I I think we tend to, like, eroticise those stories. But there's some, like, myth that we're not as interested in those stories. Well, I think Queen Victoria refused to believe that lesbians existed. Well, I mean, they also (laughs) refused to believe them in the 1960s and 1970s. There's, like... um, Uh, One scene in particular set at a radio station in the camp play uh, where that kind of comes up. But there was no anti-lesbian laws at the time because it just didn't seem to exist or enter the cultural imagination that women would be lesbians. I mean, I, I think that's connected to women being robbed of their right to be seen as sexual or sexually autonomous human beings to begin with. But look, that's exactly why Robin and I wanted to focus on lesbian stories. So you want to be a singer? I get shy, but... What yeah. kind of music? Fleetwood, Dylan. The Killing of Sister George? Someone tell me they've seen it. You're a flower child. Of course you love Dylan. They cut all the sex scenes. Kept the fighting. Cut the sex. I'm not an acid head if that's what you're thinking. But that's my point. No one's listening to you, Dave. That wasn't a dig. Of course it was. It was. It's vacuous. Stereotypes. I just, I think hippies are all about getting high, disengaging, you know, quitting society. We never see real love, so we don't know how to love. I think we have to take to the streets if we want to open people's minds. Okay, if you ask a guy about his latest lover, he'll literally never say, oh, he's so sweet and kind. He'll just say... He's enormous. You stole that, the naked civil servant. Ah, she's alive! How are you feeling? I just needed a Bex and a good lie down. This is Tracy. Should have seen us. We killed it today. Made it to Macquarie Street, broke into his foyer, tossed a bucket of sheep's brains across the floor. You had the pleasure of seeing Dr Bailey? Joe used to work for him. Oh, years ago now. Nurse's aide. Chelmsford, you heard of it? You do the hustle? Family know you're a lizard? There's a women's group in Brisbane. Patchwork. Their families all reckon they've joined a quilting club. Was she your plus one today? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with her walking? I don't know. Can she move in with us? She's 19. <laughs> I've only got the one room. She can crush with me. Must have been a good kisser. Did you vet her? I mean, where did she come from? Is she a pothead? Tell her she should swap out the Indian dress for desert boots. And Joe. Feels like a stunt. I'm not a saint. If she's a weirdo, she's out. Are you purposely ignoring me? I was speaking right at you, space cadet. Oh, sorry, Dave. That's the whiny voice I could hear from across the room. I was saying we're too middle class. Hardly our fault. The Australians the only paper printing our ads. Interstate dailies don't even bother replying to us. I'm not having this conversation but it, right it's now. True. No, it's true. It's true. We need to go into hostile environments. RSLs. Good, because I'm sick of speaking to psychs and social workers. They waffle on about castration complexes and penis envy. So which RSLs? Ah, stop sucking me in. I'm switching you off. You can't switch you. off because you are a political animal. Which is why, which is why you and I are going to run for co-presidency. Wait, you're running? She's going to get voted in and she's going to be phenomenal. That's cool. <laughs> 
Are you joining camp? I think so. I like the sound of the barbecues in the women's nights. Oh, you like coffee and chat? I told Trace we do women's night every second Wednesday because some of the men treat us like we're their housewives. Ah! What about politics? Are you interested in policy reform? So what's the appeal of camp? She knows a lot about politics. I just want to start by hanging out. I'm going to call it a night, team. Chrissy, wait. Thanks for the wreck. I feel like Therese, stuck working at a department store. Really? Not a Carol fighting for custody? Enjoy the rest of your night. You're right. Tracy's cute. Yeah, but she seems like the kind of lesbian that might want to settle down in the Blue Mountains. Grow a permaculture garden. When you invited me last night, did you already know it was going to be a kissing demo? Night, Joe. In any play, an awareness of social, historical and political perspectives are all mined to give the world of the play dimension and context. Kate Gall is supported by a first-rate team, younger artists who readily dive into the historical story which has brought about contemporary resonances for them. Composer Jess Dunn submerges herself into the rehearsal period and the essential research required. Finding the inspiration to design a musical score that elicits the sounds and oral resonance of the period, while also providing atmospheric transitions between the scenes. Uh, hello, I'm Jess Dunn. I'm the composer and sound designer of Camp. I think for me personally, my like I'm, my dad's a bass. I'm a bass player originally. My dad is also a bass player. So all the things that he was teaching me when I was younger were kind of a lot of the like rhythm and blues music from the 70s so that's kind of my, part of my way in and um, also sort of the Aussie rock bands that were playing in that period just through stories from him and his mates and then I mean the other stuff that was happening like disco and things like that I think you know I'm lucky enough to have a couple of friends that are really big disco heads like vintage disco heads so it's like I sort of feel, you know, it's definitely not an era that's, you know, unknown to me completely, which is, I think, really quite helpful for this show. <laughs> I think, like, emotionally, it, there's a lot going on. I mean, I think as a kind of, you know, younger queer person, there's a lot of this... I mean, there's some of this history that I was aware of, some of it that I wasn't aware of, and I think, you know, it's definitely affects me a lot emotionally and you know beyond that my thoughts are like how am I going to capture that kind of sonically but you still you know still being true to the era but also having a kind of maybe one foot also in the now just because of how the play moves between time periods so and I think you know from speaking to Robin like music played such a large part of like their lives in the camp office outside of the camp office you know at the bars things like that so trying to cap trying to kind of make that extra character really set the time and place but also kind of capture the excitement and the emotion of that sort of period of what they were going through.
for Robin Kennedy opening night has happened. What, how did you feel it went? Oh, look, it was absolutely incredible. Everything worked just, the, and the performers just absolutely lifted. The audience loved it. They were there every minute laughing and crying and everything I could have imagined it it was there tonight because it was your your foresight your experience your your passion which drove you to commission the play um, ultimately satisfying for you absolutely satisfying and it's exactly how I felt putting the camp book together laughing crying and that's as I put the book together I thought this is a play this is going to be an incredible play so that's what motivated me to uh, go through the long process of getting this play up and running and I'm so happy about it. And today you were given the, uh, the keys to the city, so it, it's, that must be special. Yes, it's been quite a day. Uh, of course today was the beginning of our Mardi Gras season and also the opening of Sydney World Pride and uh, the City of Sydney decided that they would commemorate these events because uh, it's also the 40th 5th anniversary of the first Mardi Gras parade that they would commemorate this by presenting the key to the city to the community and I was asked to accept the key on behalf of the community. Well congratulations Ron Kennedy and thank you for giving us this play Ken. Thank you very much Peter. I hope you've enjoyed this very special edition of the Stages podcast. Camp by Elias Jamieson-Brown, commissioned by Robin Kennedy and directed by Kate Gall. Played a triumphant season at the Seymour Centre in Sydney from February 15th to March 4th, 2023. Presented during the celebratory festivals of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras and World Pride. My thanks to the company of Camp for providing Stages with unique access to the evolution of a movement and the movement of a play. Actors at the first table read of camp were Valerie Bader, Tim McGarry, Ariadne Suros, Jane Fegan, Di Adams, Rebecca Hill and Hayden Tanazzi. The actors completing the cast in the premiere production of camp were Sandy Eldridge, Adriano Capaletta, Annie Finsterer, Lou McInnes, Genevieve Moy, Tamara Natt and Jane Fegan. The camp company offstage included associate director Hayden Tanazzi, movement director Emily Ayoub, production designer Angelina Mini, lighting and video design Morgan Moroni, composer and sound designer Jessica Dunn. Jess's exquisite soundscape for the show was featured throughout this episode. Thank you, Jess, for this evocative contribution. Stage manager was Emma Maloney and assistant stage manager Lana Phillies. My enormous gratitude goes to all of you. With special thanks for the opportunity to chronicle the development of the play and production to playwright Elias Jamieson-Brown, producer and director Kate Gall and associate and commissioning producer Robin Kennedy. Camp, Australia's pioneer homosexual rights activist, the book, is now available in hardback. Contact pridepublish at gmail.com to obtain your copy. And there you go. 
Stage's first episode for Season 6, completing the mini-series of retrospective conversations with the drag identities and divas who have been featured during the life of the podcast. We hope you enjoyed and also had a fabulous Pride and Mardi Gras season. Stages Season 6 will commence full-time on Wednesday, April 5th, just around the corner. I cannot wait. This is Peter Ayers saying keep well, everyone, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you in a few weeks' time.